All right, let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your presence here by your Holy Spirit. We know this is the word of God breathed by God from heaven through men, through the written page, the life of God behind every word. And we pray since these truths are spiritually discerned that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand, make sense and give us eyes that can see ears that truly hear and a heart that can understand these life-freeing truths that set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we find ourselves in the middle of the tribulation, the last seven years of human history as uh, foretold by the Bible and in the prophecy of the book of Revelation. We find ourselves in chapter 15, so you can make your way there. Chapter 15, the shortest chapter in Revelation, eight verses, and those eight verses have been called the prelude to doomsday. Now, if you are visiting, welcome. Uh, again, <laughs> glad you're here. Uh, maybe you woke up this morning and said, you know what, I don't want to get, I want to go to church and get an encouraging word. <laughs> and then the pastor gets up and says, prelude to doomsday. Well, you know what, believe it or not, uh, the chapter is very hopeful and bright and very encouraging. Um, you see, doomsday is necessary. It's a necessary evil that really precipitates the coming of the Lord. And so in answer to your prayers, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The church has been praying that prayer for 2,000 years. The people of God even sooner in the Old Testament praying along those same lines. In order for that to happen, though, the Lord has to take away the thing that comes against peace and goodness. And so first he deals with sin and evil, and then his glorious kingdom is established. Here's a quote from John MacArthur in his commentary on the book of Revelation. Imagine a world filled with goodness, a world where there's no injustice, where no court ever renders an unjust verdict and where everyone is free from fear and protected from all harm. Imagine a world where all business relationships and government are dominated by what is true, right, and noble. Imagine living in a place where peace rules the day, where joy abounds and good health prevails so much so that people can live hundreds of years Imagine a world where the curse on creation is lifted, where the environment is restored to the pristine purity of the Garden of Eden, when even the animal kingdom is at peace and the lion and the lamb lay down together and a little child shall lead them. Imagine a world ruled by a perfect and glorious king, God himself, visible to all, reigning in power, who administrates the earth with love, truth, and righteousness. The earth under new management, the one who wipes away every tear from our eyes, no more crying, sorrow, or pain, for the old order of things that passed away. Behold, it's a brand new day. That's coming. That's all biblical. 
but it cannot and will not come until the day of the Lord precedes it. And the day of the Lord is known as Judgment Day. And so uh, it's really two sides of the same coin. Uh, The second coming of Christ and his glorious kingdom that's coming and the annihilation and destruction of all evil and sin. They're really two sides of that same coin. They're inex... Yeah, that word. (laughs) Inextricably uh, woven together. You just can't take them apart. And so Judgment Day, maybe Hollywood style, you would see one day. You imagine it. But Judgment Day, biblically speaking, is a seven-year period. We find that in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, that it's actually a seven-year period. And we call it the Great Tribulation because that's what Revelation calls it. Chapter 7, verse 14. These are those who came out of, quote, the Great Tribulation which originally was coined by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21, where Jesus says, in those days there will be great tribulation. And the word there just means distress. And Jesus says, there will never have been that kind of trouble, nor shall there ever be that kind of intense distress uh, for all of the ages. And so it's just a terrible time coming. So the glory cannot come without the judgment. And so we've been walking through these seven years here that began back in chapter six. As I said, we're already at chapter 15. In other words, we are halfway through. Now to give you some context, the tribulation has been divided into 21 judgments and there are seven seals, seven trumpets and seven bowls. We're already past the seven seals, where a third of the population perished. We're already past the seven trumpets, where a quarter more of Earth's population perished under terrible situations of plagues and famine, global war, geological cataclysmic changes in the Earth, mountain ranges disappearing, islands being covered over. It sounds to many experts like a nuclear exchange of some kind. So those seals and those trumpets are gone. And all that's left are seven bowls. And those seven bowls of God's wrath um, really are associated with Armageddon. And so when Armageddon is over, he appears. And um, his kingdom is established. That's where we are Now, these verse, uh, these brief eight verses, chapter 15, as I said, a prelude to doomsday. Well, what it is, why it's called that is because we're going to go from this hellacious, horrendous scene of the earth. Now, right before, as the bowls are kind of loaded and getting ready to, to pour upon the earth, we get a scene from heaven, what heaven looks like, how, what's going on in heaven as we are prepping for Armageddon on the earth. And so we're going to take a look at that uh, this morning. Team Antichrist, uh, the devil, the world dictator, who is called the beast, the false prophet, who is his sidekick, who's helping through uh, 
counterfeit signs and wonders to help the world to worship the Antichrist or the beast uh, and take the number of his name or the mark of his name. On the right hand or the forehead, we've already seen this happening. He has gone into the temple. He has proclaimed himself God. He has broken the treaty with Israel that kind of brought him to the foreground. And now all hell is breaking loose. And we're, we've got 42 months left to go, in, which is three and a half years. And Armageddon is really now the nations are kind of getting ready for that big event. That is your context as we look. The last thing we heard last chapter, just to let you know, right before men take the mark of the beast, the whole planet is warned. Three angels are dispatched from heaven for earth's last call. They preach the gospel, the good news. The whole world is on fire. Everything's coming undone. And these angels in their own languages, the whole earth, it says every tribe and language, nation and tongue, hear the gospel one more time. Very clearly, the angel says, look, if you take the mark, here's what's in store. And he lists those terrible things of eternal torment, eternal separation from God, eternal suffering, no rest, day and night. Just the Lord in his mercy wanting people to know, don't do it. And in fact, the last word was this. Blessed are those who die from this time on who refuse to take the mark of the beast, then that's your only option. You refuse to take it, you're executed. So the Lord says, you are blessed. It says, blessed from now on who die in the Lord. That is the option you want. It is a blessing, not anything to be feared. So that is your context. And now the camera, as it were, shifts up to heaven, right as the world is now preparing for Armageddon. And here's the scene in heaven. Verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them, God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over that number of his name, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures, one of the cherubim, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from, and from his power. 
and no one could enter the temple until the seven last plagues, the seven angels, were completed. Now we'll pause there, and the chapter divides quite nicely for us. Really, we see in this prelude uh, to doomsday, heaven is filled with singing, and the temple is filled with glory. Ah, I got it. This is the word for glory. Just threw that in for free. Moving on. <laughs> the, he- the heaven is filled with singing and temple is filled with glory. So joyful singing and glory, you know, it's not really something that I personally would uh, expect or associate with the great tribulation, with doomsday. But from heaven's point of view, it's a necessary evil before the goodness of God's kingdom comes. Not to say God's heart is not grieved uh, as it was back in the days of the flood. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But here, before we hear the song that they're singing before the throne and meet the singers, John tells us of another miraculous wonder he sees seven angels with seven last plagues, and he calls it marvelous. Now, the word for plague there is a general word. It just means to strike a blow to the enemy. And so there's nothing really good in that cup if you're not a believer, if you're a rebellious uh, earth uh, dweller. And so... As I said, in chapter 6, we saw the seven seals open, the judgment. Chapters 8 and 9, we saw the seven trumpets. And now here in chapter 16, next chapter, the seven last bowls one by one will be poured out. Now, your text says they're the last seven, last because with them, God's wrath is completed. And that's sort of the idea of the chapter and why there can be joy and glory is because the whole idea is this completion of God's plan, fallen human history, laboring under a a terrible curse, living with sin and evil. It's about to come to a close forever. Can you imagine? Romans chapter 8 says, even the creation, the planet itself, the the agriculture, the life cycles, the weather patterns, the animal kingdom, waits in eager expectation to be set free and for the sons of God to be revealed. It says in Romans 8, in that day, the entire planet will be liberated from its bondage to decay of decay and frustration and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So we go, it's the last plagues the earth will ever see. And this is the the completion for the, the wrath of God will be complete, never again happening. A makeover for humanity as well. You know, our bodies will be suited for eternity perfectly. You will finally be the person that God wanted you to be. Relationships will be what they were meant to be. It will be a wonderful day. Ecclesiastes, 12 chapters of saying, what is up with life? Nothing makes sense. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I love that book, by the way. It's very inspiring <laughs> because you look around and go, what is wrong with this planet? And, and, and Solomon agreed <laughs> with you until the last part where he says, you know, the only thing that makes sense is to fear God and keep his commands. 
and leave the rest to him. So uh, with this marvelous sight that uh, the very last plagues, that 7,000 frustrating years from the time when Cain first picked up an instrument of murder to kill his brother Abel, 7,000 years of man's human, ill humanity to humanity. Just terrible things are about to end. And this is just a marvelous sight for a beautiful setting and song. And so we're going to take a look at this. First, the setting for the song, the singers, and then the song itself. So John says, here's the marvelous thing I saw. I looked at what appeared to be. So whenever he uses that language, you know, he's just saying, hey, this is what it looked like. I'm not saying it was that, but it looked like this sea of glass ablaze with fire. Now, that's a strange combination. On earth, we don't usually associate water and fire together, but it's meant to take us, our minds, back to the Exodus, which, by the way, the theme of the Exodus is throughout the book of Revelation. I need a drink of water. So um, the Israelites, if you remember, came through the waters of the Red Sea. So we've got fire on a sea and people singing the song of Moses by the sea. And so your minds, if you know your Bible, will go back to the Exodus. You'll remember. <clears throat> it just happens when you talk a lot. You'll remember that beautiful scene, you know, when Charlton Heston Grab that <laughs> rod. The Israelites were newly freed, you know, out of the slave pits, which really represent all of us. It really happened, but God was telling the story, and even more so to the tribulation saints. Busted out the same sort of plagues that occurred in the Exodus are happening on the earth again. And so they come to a dead end, as you'll recall, a cul-de-sac of water, the Red Sea, they're hemmed in, no place to move. So at this time, Pharaoh has a change of heart, of course, and uh, he and the strongest, swiftest army the world has ever known swoops down upon them. The Lord miraculously staves them off with his spirit. The Jews are overpowered, outgunned, outmaneuvered. They're just sitting ducks, just like the ones to come in the tribulation. Now, through the sea they go over to safety. You remember my favorite part. The Pharaoh's armies think, okay, hey, the, the pillar of fire is out of the way. Let's go the same way the, the Jews went into dry ground. They follow them in. And the Bible says, the Lord caused the, the wheels of the chariots to get stuck in the mud and then to come off. And so they realize and they exclaim, let's get out of here. The Lord is fighting for his people. They turn to leave and the Lord topples the waters up over them and they're swept away. The Jews come out the other side. They're marveling. And by the waters, they sing the song of Moses, the song that we read this morning from the psalm. Exodus 15, praising God for his miraculous way that he made for them to escape uh, their enemy's grasp. What's very interesting to me is in 1 Corinthians 10 and 2 Peter 3, both the flood of Noah's day 
and the parting of the Red Sea are referred to and alluded to in the New Testament as Christian baptism. That Noah and his family were saved through the waters. Peter says, that's baptism. That Israel passed through the sea onto dry land. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, that's baptism. It's a picture that through death, the waters of death, the people of God through faith come up and out and they stand alive, living and breathing. They have died. Our baptism says I've died and I've been raised to new life, a new birth, and I come up out of the waters having had my old life and my sins covered over, dead and gone. I come up clean, new, breathing fresh air, born from above, raised by the spirit of the living God. And that's a picture of Noah and his family and the Jews who came through the parted seas. And it will be again when those who go to their uh, martyrdom in the great tribulation, they will come up and through the waters of baptism, the fiery, the fire is added to the water because those men and women will come through the worst martyrdom. It says in Revelation 20, they will be beheaded. Not only will they not be able to enter the economic system uh, because they don't take the mark on their right hand or their forehead, they cannot eat, they cannot drink, they cannot be sheltered, they cannot buy clothes, they cannot get medicine, they cannot do anything. They're starving, they're homeless, they don't have enough food and clothing. Then they're dragged off, some of them tortured, all of them executed, beheaded. They come up through the baptisms of water and fire and judgment that's upon the earth, alive, well, cleansed, and singing. That's the message, and there they are. And another reminder there in heaven of what God has done, is doing, and will always do for his people when they're hemmed in, they're weak, they're outgunned, outmaneuvered, and God always makes a way. And you come through that, and not a hair on your head will perish, Jesus says to his people. And so it was meant to bring us back. The setting uh, takes us back to the glorious deliverance of God uh, that he did there in Exodus uh, 14. Now, the singers, what a paradox. In your text, it says, these were victorious over the beast and over this whole 666 thing. Now, picture this. What I just described for you, totally homeless, penniless, wandering around, hiding in holes in the ground in caves, fleeing for their lives with nothing, the whole world after them. And then they're dragged off thrown into prison and beheaded. And you can hear the prison guards who work for the beast. Ah, we're victorious. I love victory. And the Lord says, no, they are victorious. You are the losers. They conquered you. And how did they do that? Well, they did that by resisting, by yielding to God and not taking the mark. So the plan of the Antichrist, false prophet and team leader 
was to get you to bow and worship him. That's the whole plan. Show your allegiance, man. You're one of us earth dwellers here. Or die. They did not. They foiled their plan. Without the mark, they said, we win. Um, You know, they really had two choices, didn't they? Uh, And that's what the Lord says in the gospel, Matthew 16 and verse 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. It's really just a gospel truth. They were given two choices. Hey, take the mark and you'll spare your physical life. But you'll lose your spiritual life. So you can die to the Antichrist and to sin and to worshiping him, but be alive to God forever. Or you can spare your little measly 42 months out and physically and worship the beast and die eternally. So they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. I love what Barclay said about this verse. The real victory is not to live in safety at the expense of God's will. It's not to evade trouble, to cautiously and prudently preserve your life in your best interests, but rather face the worst that evil can do should God require it of you and be faithful though it costs you your life if God wills it. That is God's definition of victory. It's just the upside down kingdom that we're in. The Lord says, hey, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's the way. When I come back, I'll I'll right the world because right now it's upside down. The Lord says, you want to be great? Well, be the humblest servant of all. The way up is down. You want to exalt yourself? You will be humbled. And he who humbles himself to go down, that's the direction of up. Do you want to receive? Then you have to give. Do you want to live? Then you have to die to self and to sin. It's the upside down kingdom. We see it there again. So these conquerors are going to sing now to the song. And notice there's not a word about themselves in the song because everyone in heaven knows why they're there and how they got there. Or you would not be in heaven. That's kind of the prerequisite. The person who said, well, God helped those who help themselves. I'm telling you what, you wouldn't be in heaven. You didn't help yourself. You were helped because you couldn't help yourself. That's the message of the gospel. So there's no, nothing in there about themselves, only praise to God. I love Barclay again on this text. Heaven is heaven because it's there at last. All self-importance and pride are forever swallowed up in the presence of the greatness of the glory of God. Nobody in the presence of God will ever boast or think of themselves more highly as they ought. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, Paul has to tell us, don't think of yourself more highly than you should, but in humility, think of yourself with sober judgment. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul says along the same lines, consider others better than yourselves. In that day, 
with our new body, standing in the presence and glory of God, all of that will be gone forever, happily. Now, there are a couple, now to the song itself, the verses here would be the song of the Lamb, because we have the song of Moses in Exodus 15. So this short little song, sweet song of Jesus here, they're singing to him a couple sweet things to say before we go to the temple. God's unparalleled power. They sing great. And the word there in the Greek, I love it, is megas from where we get the word mega. Great and marvelous, awesome are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. So there's a shout out here. What are they saying? Hey, we just came from a world where everybody thinks and bows to the Antichrist, who's empowered by the dragon, the devil himself. And everybody looks at the false prophet who gave life to the statue that speaks as the real power and the government, everybody bowing to the government, the regime of the beast, the Antichrist's empire. But, but when they get before the Lord, they say, oh, <laughs> it was you. You're the most powerful. It's your name that's above all other names. That's the point of the song there. It's not the dragon who deceives the world. It isn't the Antichrist who strong arms the entire planet. It isn't the false prophet with his counterfeit fire from the sky and signs and wonders. And it isn't any world dictator. It's no spiritual power. You are the ruler of all, the one who calls the shots. The word for almighty there in the Greek means ruler of all, but it means he who holds sway over all things. That's who they want to give a shout out to. And the second last thing about the song that I find very sweet is that they say just and true are your ways. Now, I don't know about you, but that stopped me. I read that because I'm analyzing and I'm thinking, these are folks, if ever anybody could say, uh, lodge a complaint about the life that they were given. Why didn't this promise happen for me? Why did I have to go through this? Why, if anybody had a complaint about how God did things, it would be them. Why didn't I get raptured? Why, why, why did I have to face this world? Why didn't my kids get pulled out of the house screaming for mommy and daddy? Why did I get beheaded? Why did I have to watch my husband be beheaded? Why did I have to live for months and months starving to death? Because I couldn't buy. We couldn't sell. Oh, no, no, no. Look at that. From their lips, they're saying everything you do is right and good and true. From their lips. How much more our lips should be saying that? You know, gone forever are the Psalms that will say, you know, why, O oh Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Psalm 88. Awake, O oh Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Don't reject me forever. Psalm 44. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? Psalm 10. And Psalm 73. This guy says, you know what? I almost lost my faith. You know why? I looked out in the world and I saw evil people prospering and those who love the Lord suffering. Why is the bad guy winning? He said, you know what? That almost it blew my mind. I almost gave up the faith 
And then he said, then I sat in the sanctuary and the Holy Spirit showed me the whole picture and the end. And then I went, aha, I get it. But when you stand before God, no matter what you went through in your life, Romans 8.28, for God causes all things to work together for your good because you love him and you're called according to his purpose. We take it by faith now. We don't understand any of it because everyone in this room could go, excuse me, all things working together. Let me tell you about what happened to me when I was eight. Right? We all have that. When you stand in the presence of God, and you have loved God, and you have called according to his purpose, you will then take Romans 8, 28 by sight. You'll get it. You'll go, oh, how beautiful. Oh, I never would have thought if that didn't happen, if you didn't take that, if I didn't get that disease, uh, that person over there wouldn't even be saved. There are so many things, and you're saying already, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, because you know all these other things that must be beyond and be the exception to Romans 8.28. There are no exceptions to Romans 8.28. For God causes all things. You know what that word in the Greek means? The all? It means? Yeah, you got it. It means all. And so when they get there, they're saying, look, number one, everything that's going on in those seven bowls, just, deserved, good, loving, Everything you put us through, good, just, right. That's heaven. And it won't be forced or coerced out of anybody. It will be naturally understood. It'll be unfolded before the eyes of your soul and understanding you will get it. You'll be able to do that kind of math. Right now, the Lord says, could you just use faith? Trust me. All things, I'm knitting this thing together. You can't see 25 years down the road. I can. Wait until you get here, then you're going to go, oh, wow, beautiful. Amen? I'm done with that whole section. <laughs> Let's move to the temple, all right? Three last verses. Just, you'd be surprised what you're going to find here. Very, very intriguing, very, very moving for me. So here come the seven bowls of Armageddon and, and all hell breaking loose on the earth. Um, they are in the hands of seven angels who emerge from this temple in heaven. Now there is a temple in heaven. And by the way, the temple on earth, both of the ones that were constructed as well as the tabernacle were made as copies of what is in heaven. Crude copies, probably, but copies nonetheless. That's Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. Now, from this open tabernacle, dwelling place, sanctuary, the word there is inner holy sanctuary, a valuable insight. We see uh, the wrath-bearing angels coming out from God's holy presence, and we see a shout-out to the tabernacle of testimony. Now, the word testimony, if it's ever used, is always to describe the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. The same thing. It means the Ten Commandments. How are the Ten Commandments a testimony? The testimony of God. If you want to be alive spiritually, if you want to come to heaven, 
if you want to be reconciled with the source of life, me, then I testify and make a covenant with you. Here's the arrangements. You'll have to love me first and foremost, not worship anything other than me. You'll have to love other people the way you love yourself. You're going to have to live uh, and obey God-given authority structures like your parents. You'll have to keep yourself sexually pure, to live with total honesty and integrity, to do no harm like killing people with guns or murdering people with your lips. You're not to crave the things God hasn't given you or desire the things he's given your neighbors. That's my testimony. The ark of the testimony means the box where that testimony is kept. The ark of the covenant, covenant, Ten Commandments. It's just a box where the Ten Commandments testify to the whole world. You want to be with me, then you'll keep these every day, in every way, all the time, perfectly. So then we get a shout out to it. Why? Because the world below has broken all of those. And the seven bowls of his wrath are falling on people who spit on that testimony. Say, we don't need that testimony. We don't respect that testimony. And we're not going to keep that testimony. Interesting thing of all for me. The most wonderful part of this. I hope you catch it. The bowls in the temple are meant to remind you when you hear testimony, the box with the, with, the, with the Ten Commandments in it, because there are bowls in that temple back in the day. So after the Lord in Exodus 20 to 24 reads the Jews the deal, here's the testimony. I testify, here it is. He says, now fill bowls with blood. And sprinkle the worshipers with the blood and pour that blood on the altar. Then later, on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the, 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 the bull is brought in. The sins are confessed onto the head of the bull. The bull's throat slit. The blood is drained into bowls, into the temple. And that is poured where? On top of the mercy seat. That's the box, the ark. The covenant is inside the Ten Commandments. The top of the box is called the mercy seat. It comes off. That's where, how you put stuff in and take it out. But as it's sitting there between the cherubim, the blood from the bowl collected from the sin offering is placed and poured on the mercy seat. So what was the Lord saying? Look, people, I know you can't keep them. You've broken them all in the 15 minutes it took me to read them to you. All right, and you're, no offense to all of you. <laughs> you're all like, what? <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. You're breaking them again. <laughs> he says, so if you want a relationship with me, it certainly won't be through your own efforts, but through the efforts through the death and merits of somebody else who had to pay the price that you couldn't afford. Done. And the blood goes there. Now, now we have the explanation. You know, we, had two, we have two options. This was a picture 
of the true offering. God himself becoming a man to bear our sins. He drinks the cup of God's wrath. The bowl of God's wrath in the garden, as we talked about last week, he consumes. The sins of the world are laid on him. And by his blood, Hebrews says, he takes a bowl of blood, not wrath, blood into the heavens, into the holy of holy place in the heavens to offer to cleanse the souls of men who trust in the name of God's son. So we have somebody who bore the seven bowls of God's wrath onto himself and by his blood. Now, we don't have to keep those testimonies, that testimony to save us. We keep it as a response of his love and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, thank you for that. Where did the seven bowls of God's wrath go? They go on those who have rejected the covering. There was only two places for it to go. The wrath on Jesus dumped on his head so that we couldn't even recognize that he was a human being. The wrath of God appeased totally. Or the bowls you see in the angel's hands. They're going to be dumped on a world that said, no, thank you to this part. No, thank you. So he says, this is, check this out. Next chapter, last bowl. There's a voice from heaven that says, it is finished It's the same line that Jesus says on the cross. It is finished. So there are two options for humanity. You either let the Lord say it is finished on his son as a guilt offering, appeasing the wrath of God for your sins. It is finished. Or you let the wrath of God remain on you and deal and fall upon your sin and your life. Those are the two options because at the end of that, he is dealt with sin completely. And he says, it's done. (laughs) But he would have rather that anybody during that period would have come under the protection of God's son. He was willing that none perish. The saddest thing in the world is that every last soul that perishes didn't have to. The voice that saved me on that day said, why will you go to hell when you don't have to? That's the heartbeat of God. But if you resist, and if after half of the world disappears in a rapture, and angels are are pronouncing the gospel in your mother tongue, and you're watching mountains fall into the heart of the sea, and you're hearing the voice of 144,000 witness the gospel, And you're still, and it says, they shake their fists at God and refuse to repent. Then God says, get the seven bowls ready. And he's going to turn them out. But he'd rather have turned it on his own dear son, which he did. And that's the part the world likes to leave out. Look at the wrath of God. You call this a loving God. (laughs) Let me show you. The picture of Christ. Go see the passion and know that that is God on that cross and the bowl of God's wrath pouring on top of him. The last little thing that just stuck my heart the glory of God. Now, 
fills that temple in heaven. Interesting phrase. And no one could come near until all seven bowls were poured out. It may be good and just and fair and right, but it doesn't mean God is happy about it. Genesis 6 and verse 9, it grieved God that he had made man and, quote, pain filled his heart. Here commentators say, God says, end the dream, the world's over, my planet, my earth, pour them out, and then everybody leave me alone. He withdraws, and it says no one could go near him. No business as usual. Don't talk to me. I'm withdrawing. I'm grieving. I'm brooding. My world, my earth. Come on. Jesus wept to Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 9, says, anyone who has seen me has seen God the Father. So now we know, watch Jesus and you'll know the heart of God. Jesus coming in, Palm Sunday, on the colt. He sees Jerusalem and he weeps. And he says, if you only knew this, what this means, the day of your visitation. He says, but you know what? The place is going to be destroyed and leveled and your, your children and bloodshed. If Jesus weeps because of the destruction that comes in AD 70 in one square mile, that cost one million people their lives. How much more now the spirit of God grieving and brooding and weeping over not one square mile, but 198 million square miles. That's his earth. And how many billions with a B? 58% of the earth's population perished and we weren't at the seven bulls. We were only at seven seals and seven trumpets. 58% of the earth gone. What is that? Three billion. So God says, I'm in my temple. I'm doing the right thing. I don't want to speak. Nobody come near me until it's over. It's the heart of God. Jonah's like, I'm waiting for you to blast those Ninevites, Lord. And I'm not very happy about it. I knew this was going to (laughs) happen. You told me to go and preach to them. They're wicked, wicked people. And sure enough, nothing. Because why? They repented. Oh, I'm sorry, God. And, And now look, you don't even kill them. And the Lord says, I got a lesson for you, Jonah. You know what? He caused a little plant to grow up and shade Jonah's little bald head. He got scorched in the sun. And then he, God provided a little worm that ate that little shade bush, and it withered. And he was mad, and he was mad. And the Lord says, you're so angry. He says, I could die, I'm so mad. And he goes, you know what, Jonah? You're really out of it. Listen, <laughs> I was thinking of all kinds of words there. Yeah, you, you know, come on, get on the same page with me, man. The city's got, like, you know, 100,000 people and lots of cows. He, he's, the Lord says, and the cows, too. 
I got a heart for the animals, for the people. They had kids there. They repented, man. I'm happy about that. But he's not going to find that in the tribulation. He's going to find a lot of hard hearts. Revelation 19, verse 19. They're destroying Israel, the Antichrist and his regime. The nations have gathered in Armageddon and they see him and they say, fire on him. They make war. Revelation 19, 19, check it out. They make war with the Lord Jesus Christ. The dumbest move in the Bible. (laughs) That is just not using wisdom <clears throat> and then the, and it says and he slayed them with one word what did he say like seriously <laughs> that, that was the one word boom done uh yeah not smart these are the kinds of people you know breaks god's heart he says listen uh, withdrawn I'm heavy don't just yeah Let us be the kind of people who take these realities to heart, number one, and live worthy of this kind of calling, and number two, to share the gospel. While it is Matthew 24, business as usual, weddings and banquets and work, that's the time before the rapture. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love, your patience, and this wonderful book filled with promises and good news. Lord, for those who trust words of life, for those who will turn, words of mercy and grace, you laid down your life for us to prove how much you loved us, Lord. Thank you. You'll love us, you'll like us, you're for us. And you have said, I promise to spare you from the hour that comes upon the whole earth. And we thank you for that promise. And we encourage one another with these words. And help us to live for you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.